You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. The scripture today is taken from the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tashish. For I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plants for which you did not labor, nor do you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perish in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Iwa. Morning, the Lord bless you, church. Now, this morning, we are looking at the second part of the Jonah series, Jonah chapter 4. Now, as you heard last Sunday, Jonah's story is a prophetic narrative in the Old Testament that tells us God's compassion is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, people like us. And we can draw a lot of precious lessons from this book for our lives. Let's take a moment now just to ask God to guide us in the hearing God's word through prayer. Father in heaven, as we turn our eyes to Jonah chapter 4, grant us wisdom that we may hear your truths and discern your voice. Speak, O Lord, for we long to hear you and obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On 7th April, 1837, Hans Christian Andersen had his third and final installment of Fairy Tales Told to Children officially published. Among the fairy tales told was this very memorable tale told about two con men and a very vain emperor. In this tale, two con men had arrived at the capital city of an emperor who spent lavishly on clothing, 
So the con man uh, poses weavers, and they offer to supply him with magnificent clothes that are invisible to those who are stupid or incompetent. So basically, if you're smart, you can see this. And if you're stupid, you can't. So the emperor was thinking, oh, great. I want him to wear something like that. Can differentiate between the smart ones and the stupid ones among my officials some more. Fantastic idea. And so he hired them, right? And these weavers set up what is called looms for the weaving, and they go to work. A number of officials and the emperor himself visited them to check on the progress. And each time they couldn't see anything, actually, but they pretended otherwise because no one wanted to be called a fool. Finally, the weavers reported that the emperor's suit is finished. And then they just pretended to dress him, and he sets off in a procession before the whole city. The townsfolk who gathered there also couldn't see anything, but they uncomfortably went along with the pretense, not wanting to appear stupid also. Until a child blurted out, the emperor has no clothes! And at that moment, all the people realized everyone has been fooled. And people pointing at the emperor and burst out laughing. Now this story, I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have heard before, the emperor's new clothes was written as a satire, using irony to ridicule people's stupidity in blindly following the opinions of others in society. Now probably has political undertones as well. Basically, you're meant to read it and feel like this story is so ridiculous. How could the emperor, this king, be so blinded, so vain as to even believe this imaginary clothing? Now, the narrative works very well in driving home his message because it is so ridiculously ironic. Now, you heard why I read Jonah 4 just now? And of course, we in Agape, we treat the reading of God's word with deep reverence. We typically usually wouldn't laugh out loud in any reading. It would be quite rude, actually. But if there's any passage in the Bible that wants you to respond thinking, what a ridiculous story. How foolish. This is so laughable. This is one such story. Now, Jonah 4 works really well in driving home its message because, like the emperor's new clothes, this narrative is so ridiculously ironic. Jonah, the prophet, saved by God, called by God, is a fuming, pouting, fussy prophet and is behaving like an immature, self-exalt fool in the story. He's so angry, he wants to die. Now remember, he had experienced God's compassion. But now, he is complaining himself about God's compassion. He is as far from God's compassion as you could imagine. And this story is written to help readers realize this. What Jonah is saying is how he's responding in this story is ridiculous, full of irony. And the more we realize how ridiculous this story is, the more we can let the text speak to us and help us too as we encounter God's compassion. Let the irony pierce into your hearts. We all are like Jonah, far away from God's compassionate heartbeat, especially for the lost. But God wants all of us, as work in progress, to grow in compassion. Now, from this story today, we can derive this 
actionable truth for us, which is this, because God calls us to be compassionate, we must surrender to God whatever hinders our growth in compassion. That's a lesson God taught Jonah, which we all can learn as we identify with Jonah's folly. Now the question is this, how do you do that? How do you surrender to God's compassion, right? Surrender to God to grow in compassion when you struggle to appreciate God's compassion. Because for Jonah, he actually struggled. It was hard. Now thank God though, for Jonah chapter 4, we see God interacting with Jonah and teaching him. And this text today answers this question for us. So if you have the Bibles with you and your, or your phones with you, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4 in the ESV, the English Standard Version. We're going to look at the text together in context and see how God answers this very question. How do you surrender to God to grow in compassion when you struggle to appreciate God's compassion? And we see the answers as we go through the text. The first thing is this. Surrender your interest to God in light of His character. Surrender your interest to God in light of His character. Now, that's exactly what Jonah did not do. He sees the Ninevites turning from evil and gets the sense that God is relenting of His judgment. And he's not pleased. God is no longer angry, but now Jonah gets angry. Verse 1 says that it displeased him exceedingly. It is so ironic because he had already forgotten about how God had relented from judging him. And this time, as he did in the belly of the big fish, he prays. The last time he prayed, he was full of gratitude regarding God's compassion. This time he prays, he's full of anger regarding God's compassion. The narrator wants you to notice this pattern. It's ridiculous. And look at verse 2. He says in verse 2, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to Tashish. But now we know the reason. Jonah fled was because, the reason he fled was because he feared that God would spare Nineveh, who is a threat to Jonah and his own people. And then he continues, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is so angry with God, hopping mad, that he says, Please, take my life away from me. Better for me to die than to live. Now, basically, this is Jonah's problem. He's nationalistic, actually. Cares only about the Jews. And as a prophet of God, he doesn't want to be a light to the nations. Effectively, he's saying to God, God, I, I cannot trust your character. If you save the Ninevites then their existence will be a threat to my interest, my people's interest. I need to protect my people's interest against you. God's prophet trying to protect his people's interest, his interest from a God who cares greatly for their interests. Can you sense the ridiculousness? Jonah thinks he needs to protect his interest, his people's interest. So he's skeptical of God's compassion. He sees God's compassion as, to his enemies as a threat against his interests, the interests which are so dear to him. And that's the problem. 
you can only surrender your interest to God if you realize that your interests are protected by God who cares for you. Your interest is not found outside God's care. It's found within God's care for you. The question is, do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? Now, it's easy to laugh at Jonah until you realize that the stakes that we are talking about is pretty high. In his case, Jonah feared that the Ninevites would be a threat to his people, and they were. Years later, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were indeed responsible for bringing Jonah's people into exile. So you can imagine Jonah, if he gets the chance, saying years later, God, I told you, your compassion is a problem for my life, for my people's life, for the lives of people I care about. Now, but you see, even the exile itself, as we read in Scripture, was God protecting the interests of His own people, His precious people. It was judgment, yes, but God was also protecting His people from being enslaved to sin and idolatry. Now, dear people, you have to know this. God loves you more than you love yourself. He cares for your interests far more than you could ever care. We don't even know the number of hairs on our heads. And Jesus says, God knows. How could God not care? Jonah describes God as a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He uses the language of Exodus 34, 6-7. How God had revealed himself to Moses previously. Now, typically, this description of God is used as a basis of hoping God. The prophet Joel did that in Joel 2.13. But Jonah here uses this description to criticize God. And what's more, Jonah intentionally quotes only a part of it. He says nothing about God not leaving the guilty unpunished. Now, why does he omit that? He's actually implying God is unjust. So Jonah is using scripture to criticize God. You are so compassionate and all that, yes, but you are unjust. You never do what you said you would do. You don't judge those evil people who are a threat to your chosen people like me. Do you see how Jonah is attacking God's character using the Bible? Profoundly ironic. Now Jonah knows his Bible very well, he quotes it from memory, and yet he's dismissive of God's character. Now listen, Jonah has a heart problem that is very, very dangerous for any believer. He knows the Bible well, but he does not know the God of the Bible well. If Jonah lived now day and age, he would be like someone who is very biblical in speech, but who does not understand the gospel. You can quote scripture, the Bible here, the Bible there, and yet still do not know this God who is full of compassion for sinners. The only way you can surrender your interest wholeheartedly to God is if you know not just the Bible, but the God of the Bible. This past week, uh, Pastor Tation and I attended what is called the Gospel Fellowship. 20 over pastors from various churches gathered together in one venue. All of us believe in gospel centrality. So we're talking about the gospel, what it means to be gospel-centered. So uh, each church is called upon to share uh, every time we meet. 
So they went by alphabetical order. Agape was the first church, so we're called upon to share our church update. Right, Pastor Tation and I shared. And we spoke about our church journey, you know, in gospel centrality, our church brokenness, how the gospel of grace has healed us, humbled us, allowed us to be vulnerable in sharing our sinfulness, our weakness. And in that time of sharing, it was obvious. Pastors from other churches heard our story, and through the things they said, through the way they looked at us, they found it beautiful. Because a number of them mentioned that they come from church backgrounds where the church is full of Bible, but very, very far from the tender, compassionate spirit of the God of the Bible. And as I shared, we shared, I could sense that some of them were like, wow, agape. There's something distinctively beautiful about this 40-year-old Agape Baptist Church. Now, if any of you are new to our church or you've been coming for a while and thinking of settling down here, and you're thinking, what kind of a church is Agape? I tell you this very day. It's a broken church. It's an imperfect church. But it's a beautiful church for broken, imperfect people, sinners saved by grace. We are a church that does, does not just want to know the Bible. We want to know the God of the Bible, the compassionate God of the Bible, to know His character and the light in it. Jonah 4 is using the character of Jonah intentionally to warn us. Be careful of a spirit like the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They know God's word, they quote it, but they distort it, they misuse it. They use it to protect their own selfish interests. They think they know the Bible, but they do not know the God of the Bible. They know the letter, but not the spirit. Scripture is meant to reveal to us God's character. And when you know God's character, you can trust His character, you celebrate His character you will be able to surrender your interests to this compassionate God. And because of that, grow in your compassion like Him. In verse 4, God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now, Jonah does not answer the question. It's very likely. So it's like he just walks away, so angry with God that he refuses to engage. The very first time the Bible describes someone as angry with God, that man also refused to engage. There was Cain in Genesis chapter 4. And just like Cain, Jonah's sin is crouching like a tiger, ready to pounce. But God is going to help him further. What it means to surrender to God, to grow in godly compassion. God teaches Jonah and by extension all of us through an object lesson in verses 5 to 8. And through this object lesson, you learn that to grow in compassion, you don't just have to surrender your interest to God in light of His character. You must also surrender your comfort to God in light of His sovereignty. Surrender your comfort to God in light of His sovereignty. Now what happens is Jonah goes out of the city, he finds a place to the east of the city, he makes a booth for himself, he sits under the shade, wanting to see what would happen to Nineveh. 
Now, apparently, he's still hoping that God would change his mind and still destroy this wicked city. Then comes the object lesson. The text says God appoints a plan that shades him further, saves him from his discomfort. Jonah is exceedingly glad when that happens, but when dawn the next morning comes, God appoints a worm to attack the plant, and the plant withers. Then when the sun rises, God appoints a scorching east wind, and the sun beats down on Jonah. And Jonah is so dehydrated, he feels like fainting, probably getting a heat stroke, and he says again, it is better for me to die than to live. Now what's going on here? What's this object lesson for? God is teaching Jonah something precious. You have to surrender your comfort to God. Jonah is holding on to his own stubborn ideas of what comfort looks like. And God is teaching him to surrender his comfort to him. And how do you do that? By recognizing that God is the one who provides your comfort. The text makes this clear. Jonah's comfort is ultimately provided by God himself. Jonah is happy when he experiences comfort, the shade of the plant. But the narrator stresses that it is God who had appointed the plant. God is the one who provides comfort. Just as God was the one in chapter 1 who had appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. In both instances, God is the one who does the appointment to provide the comfort. Now, Jonah thinks that he's being merely saved from physical discomfort. But it's more than that. Inside the belly of the great fish, when God provides comfort, here again, under the shade of the plant, God provides comfort to save him. You see, our God is a God who wants to comfort, comfort his people. Not just in a superficial way, but in a very deep way. Verse 6 says, to save him from his discomfort. You know, it's fascinating that the same Hebrew word for discomfort is also used to describe evil in other contexts. Now, I firmly believe, as with many others, that this is a clever word played by the narrator. The word anger in Hebrew as well, it means anger, but it could also describe it as being hot, furious, burn. So this story is glaringly ironic. What is happening in this object lesson is this. When God comforts Jonah, God is not just saving Jonah from the discomfort of external heat. God is saving Jonah from his evil of internal burning anger. That's the kind of comfort that God provides. Jonah is happy with just being in his comfort zone away from the heat. But God brings a comfort that is far greater. He saves, He delivers from the heat that is inside. For Jonah to grow in godly compassion, he has to realize this. He needs to embrace the comfort that God only provides. If he stays within his own perceived comfort zone, he won't be able to grow any further. A few weeks ago, the cell leaders had a lunch session on Sunday. We spoke about the upcoming plans, as you've heard already, about cell renewal. And I mentioned to them in my sharing how I made some big mistakes in my previous church when it came to cell groups. 
Now, in my previous church as a member, I was guilty of not being very regular on many occasions. You know the kind who grieves cell leaders? You wouldn't like me as a cell member. <laughs> Multiple occasions, texting one hour or less before cell group saying, sorry, I'm not coming. Now, some of you may have texted that in your cell for good reasons. That's different. Mine was usually, mostly, almost always bad reasons. Right. I know last minute things do happen in your case, but in my case, oftentimes it's not. I was just too lazy to go. Now, I regretted doing that. Hurt my cell leaders and other members left, right, center. And then I made the opposite mistake when I became a cell leader. I took ownership. I love the cell dynamics a lot. Great chemistry with the existing people in my cell group. Never wanted it to change. Borderline frowned when I saw new people joining it. It messed up with the cell dynamics. I cannot say the same things I like to say anymore. I was more interested in what I preferred more than seeing other people grow or even seeing other people saved. In my previous church, my cell group became my comfort zone. And I loved it the way it was. Didn't want it to change ever. Over time, the Lord convicted me that the posture of my heart was wrong. He wanted to save me from what was inside. And it coincided with the Lord's prompting in my heart to bring my family to Agape Baptist Church. So when the Lord stirred my heart to bring my few months old son then, now in the service here with my wife, back then to Agape in 2011, I was sitting at the back there when Melissa, was, I think, are seated. And seated. I still remember I made a new commitment to God back then when I decided, like, okay, this is the church. We decided to settle down here. Personally, in my heart, I made a fresh commitment to God with regard to cell groups. Now, I didn't tell Sokhui or Karen this. They were cell overseers during the time. But they must have been happy when they first approached this newcomer. They're like, you know, are you considered integrating some more to go to cell? Because my heart commitment to sell in my new church, Agape, was this. Two simple questions in my heart. Where am I needed? How can I be a blessing in this cell that I'm going to? Where am I needed? How can I be a blessing? Wherever I am needed, go ahead. Just assign me there. And when I'm there, I'm not asking. Will I be blessed there? I used to ask that a lot in my previous church. I'm not going to ask it here. I asked myself, how can I be a blessing there? Now, I didn't want to bring the bad mistakes from my previous church to Agape, and so I did that. I was okay with whatever arrangements they made for me, for me and my wife. Sokwe and Karen must have been wondering, quietly wondering, like, wow, this new guy, so easygoing, so good. <laughs> just, just past 30 a little bit, you know, joining a new cell. I recall, first cell with a member around my father's age, uh, 70s and 80s, first time for me. This was very new. Uh, I had to learn how to relate back then. But I realized over time, he benefited me a lot, helped me to appreciate brothers and sisters who are way older than me in wonderful ways. But what Sokwe and Karen didn't know then was this. It is not about being easygoing. It's a commitment to God that I made in my heart when I made the decision to join this particular church. God, lead me to a church where I will serve you till I drop. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. 
Where am I needed? How can I be a blessing? I don't need to be in my comfort zone. What I need is the comfort of God so that I can look at my cell members and the others in compassion, those who are still lost, with God's eyes of compassion. I can tell you, having joined a number of cell groups in Agape Baptist Church, each one has blessed me in different ways, as God has so ordained. Now, if you've been in the same cell group as me before, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for making a difference to my life as well. And I hope I've made a difference to your life too. In today's passage, God uses this object lesson to bring Jonah to a greater surrender, to recognize that God is not just sovereign over us in the way He comforts. He is also sovereign over us in the way He afflicts. Both in comfort and in affliction, God is sovereign. And this truth allows us to surrender our comfort to Him. It is obvious that the narrator wants us to see God's sovereignty in affliction. In verse 7, God is the one who appointed the worm that attacked the plant. In verse 8, God is the one who appointed a scorching east wind. God is sovereign. He appoints the means of comfort. He appoints the means of affliction. Now, why is God doing this to Jonah? Because God wants Jonah to know. To know. It is not true that I do not judge as you implied earlier. I relent and comfort and I also judge and afflict. Now, I want to stress this in case we misunderstand. Even when it's a spiritual attack from the evil one, like in the case of Job, some of us are reading that text right now this season, God still remains sovereign. God always is. Because God is sovereign, our comfort is in the hands of God. So we make a big mistake if we think that we can make our own plans to secure our own lasting comfort. At the end of the day, nobody in this broken world can do that. So the wisest thing to do is to surrender our comfort to our sovereign God. You can also surrender your comfort to God, not just by drawing your comfort from God, but also in allowing God to shape you to the experience of discomfort. Now think about the seasons of discomfort in your own life, seasons of hard suffering. When you surrender your comfort to God, when you acknowledge that God knows best for your life, when you say to God, I'll hope and trust in you through my pain, that is when you will learn to empathize with others who suffer the same way. When you suffered an illness, when you lost a loved one way earlier than you expected, when you faced loneliness, when you've experienced burnt out as a young mother, when you fight God no longer, but surrender your comfort to Him. Hasn't it opened your heart to gain greater compassion for those who are going through the same path? Some of God's finest warriors in redemptive history have emerged through the burning furnace of affliction. God is revealing to Jonah the painful agonies of affliction and invites him to consider why he wants that for the Ninevites. God is teaching Jonah compassion. Consider your experience of painful suffering right now. 
when I withdraw the comfort. That's what God is saying. Why would you want the Ninevites to be afflicted unto their destruction? You should pity them instead. You know, many have said this before. Your suffering in life will either make you bitter or it will make you better. Jonah is suffering under the heat, but it's not making him better. It's making him bitter. There is one more thing that he needs to learn, to surrender to growing compassion. And you need that too. Surrender your righteousness to God in light of His salvation. Surrender your righteousness to God in light of His salvation. Now, why is Jonah getting increasingly angry? Because he's holding on so tightly to his own self-righteousness. In verse 9, God asks again, do you do well to be angry? This time Jonah answers, and he does so emphatically. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. You have to realize that God's answer in response in verses 10 to 11 is very witty and ironic. In effect, God says to that outburst, okay, you pity the plant. Got so much compassion for this plant. You didn't work for it. You didn't grow it, but you pity it. After it grew, and then it perished. Now, if you pity the plant, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? This city where more than 120,000 people are morally and spiritually lost. And then if you don't care about these people, this image bearers, think about this. Shouldn't I care for the cattle, the animals, since you care so much about even a plant? That's the effect of the question. That's why God brought cattle into the equation. It's an indictment on Jonah. Jonah's focus is on himself, and even the object of his compassion is tied to himself. His so-called pity on the plant is only because the plant benefits him. This is self-righteous thinking. God is teaching Jonah and all of us why you must surrender your righteousness to God. It is because your righteousness is not good enough before a holy God. Holding on to it is no use. You've got to surrender your righteousness to God. Admit that you are morally bankrupt. Our righteousness cannot gain an ounce of God's compassion. Jonah thinks he is righteous, at least more righteous than the Ninevites. So God must pity him and his people, not the Ninevites. Now Jonah is badly mistaken. The prophet Isaiah says, all our righteousness are as filthy rags before a holy God. That's the truth. So what's the hope for us then? The hope is in God's salvation. You can surrender your righteousness to God because our compassionate God has provided His righteousness in salvation for us, for you. Every one of us needs God's righteousness in salvation, just as badly as the most wicked people on this planet. You know the story in Jonah ends somewhat abruptly. Jonah doesn't say anything to that question. The conversation is left hanging, just like the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Father talks to the older brother, the older son, you should celebrate and rejoice. Your brother was lost, but now is found. 
Story just ends there. Same. No response from the older brother. It's the same appeal to the self-righteous. God's appeal to the self-righteous prophet in Jonah chapter 4. Jesus' appeal to the self-righteous Pharisees, the religious leaders in Luke 15. Why aren't you glad that undeserving sinners are saved by God? Unless you think that you're more deserving than they Now, even though Jonah doesn't respond to God's question at the end of this book, we have good reason to believe that he eventually surrendered his righteousness to God and accepted God's righteousness in salvation for him. Why? Because of the fact that this story is recorded this way. Now, Jonah is depicted as a self-exalt fool in this story, and the only way he would have, you know, the only way we get this story is because he shared this story candidly and it was written down. All these minor details and for it to be shared this way. Sharing this story this way means that for the rest of Christian history, people would look at Jonah and laugh at him as a silly, self-righteous prophet. Jonah had to make a choice and he made a choice courageously to be portrayed as a fool for God's purposes. You know, it's like God coming to Jonah and saying to him after this whole episode, Jonah, I would like this embarrassing account of your life to be recorded in the Bible. Are you willing? And in fact, Jonah's response is, yes, O God. Even if everyone in this world, generations to come, laughs at me, I'm willing to look like a fool for you. Go ahead and have this humiliating story written this way about me. That's the response of a man who is not standing on his righteousness, but the righteousness of God himself, who will be revealed years later. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God revealed, also chose to be a fool in the eyes of the world for our salvation. He courageously emptied himself, surrendered himself, gave up his interests, his comfort, took our sins upon himself, and gave us his righteousness. On the cross, our Lord hung naked, spiritually bearing the burning wrath of God that we deserve. I wonder what it was like for the people back then witnessing the crucifixion on that fateful day. On the top of Jesus' cross, the inscription read, This is the King of the Jews. The Bible tells us that some people down below were shouting, Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Can you hear the irony? So profoundly ironic. They didn't know that Jesus needed to save mankind by going through the cross, not by escaping the cross. Crucifixions during the first century under Roman rule were meant to be public spectacles for entertainment and as a warning to society. So children could have been there too. Hear the little child's cry pierce into the air. Look at this king. The king has no clothes. 
laughter all around. Not a proud, pompous king. It's our king, people. Our humble king. Our servant king. He would be stripped. He was stripped of clothing that day. But he was more concerned that we would be clothed eternally with his righteousness. He surrendered himself for you and for me out of compassion. Jesus was so angry at the consequences of sin for our lives. So righteously angry that he was angry enough to die for you and for me. Our Lord rose victoriously from the grave, ascended to heaven. He now reigns forevermore and he promises to come back for you and me one day. We await his return as we surrender our lives to him daily. That's what he calls us to. Dear people, make no mistake about it. God has great compassion for you. Immense compassion. And now as he calls you, won't you surrender your life to him? Live a life filled with compassion for him. For the people in your life, for the lost in Singapore, for the lost in the nations that you've been called to go. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I'm grateful to you for your unwavering compassion towards us. Because of Jesus Christ, we have everlasting hope. Teach us to surrender ourselves courageously to you so that we may grow in godly compassion to reach out to the lost. Let us live the surrendered life that reflects the beauty of Christ our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg. 